This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome, I'm Jake Cantor. On this episode, we look ahead to what could be a historic month for the BBC, discuss the exodus at BBC Studios and discover some unguarded views from John Whittingham. Also on the programme, TV's view on the EU referendum and analysis on the BBC, Channel 4 and Channel 5 commissioning a spread of documentaries about British Muslim communities. Finally, we're also on the previews trail. We will have the verdict on Nev's Indian Call Centre and Mum, the new sitcom from the creator of Him and Her. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. In the studio this week, broadcast web editor Alex Farber and Stephen D. Wright, the founder and commander-in-chief of new factual entertainment indie Kerfuffle TV. Yes, that's me. I feel like I should do some sort of fanfare or something. There should be. I hope you lay on a fanfare now. (laughs) Uh, So come on, spill all, tell us all. launch this week, new indie, hopefully going to be as big as Endemol by the end of the week. By the end of the week. By the end of the week. No, it's basically a new indie and uh, there definitely seems to be an appetite for new indies at the moment because all the small indies seem to have been swallowed up over the last few years. So there seems to be kind of a new flush of producer, creators, whatever, starting little indies. I'm in bed with a company called The Hot House, who are investment people who are looking to invest with creatives and and grow Remy Blumenfeld. Remy Blumenfeld and Justin Bodel. And basically, there's a couple of people that are doing this now in London because there is a lack of small indies. And a lot of people who need that sort of help and a bit of a nudge to kind of help them grow. So hopefully, you know, I will survive and thrive and bring you know good shows out that's what it that's what it's all about i liked remy's comment in the magazine this week as part of the press release when he said from reading stephen's column in broadcast every week you may think he is a a miserable cynic or something like that but, but nothing instead, could be further from the truth well it's true this he is definitely said cynic not another word beginning with no cynic. i don't think he said that word <laughs> uh on to uh, some other news this week uh, the bbc is braced for one of the biggest months in its history as the government prepares to publish the white paper on charter renewal and Tony Hall readies his Rethian restructure. Uh, the white paper will set out the government's vision for the BBC over the next decade and it was leaks galore in the Sunday newspapers with three major right-wing mouthpieces reporting that John Whittingdale is planning a crackdown on BBC scheduling. Uh, soon after the white paper's publication... Hall is expected to announce plans to reshape the BBC into genre divisions. Uh, The Director General has barely uttered a word about the plans and speculation is rife about who will land key positions in his new structure. Top of the pile is the so-called Director of Content, who will potentially oversee all three of the Rethian divisions. Hall is understood to have approached former Channel 4 boss Michael Jackson and ex-Endemol Shine president Tim Hinks, uh, while the Radio Times has reported that BBC Wales boss Rodri Talfan davis is now favourite to land the job. Whew, that's quite a lot there. Let's start with the white paper, shall we? Mail on Sunday said the BBC will be banned from airing shows like Strictly Come Dancing in primetime. Mm. The Sunday Times had a rather more nuanced take and said that BBC commercial rivals will be able to complain to a regulator if the BBC deliberately schedules aggressively. I mean, in- it sounds like it's going to be more like the latter than mm. the former. Initially, this sounded like a spoof story. You know what I mean? It sounded so ridiculous. It's so nonsensical for the BBC to apologise for making good shows that become popular and that somehow they have to sort of phone ITV up and say, oh, you don't mind if we put a show out that people might watch next, six, you know, next Friday at six o'clock, which is how it kind of initially read. 
And then you start thinking, no, this is basically a sort of a tester where they float these sort of more extreme ideas out there, see if anybody objects, and then they will start to crack down. So to me, this is a horrendous turn of events. I mean, completely and utterly ridiculous that the government are involved in the scheduling of programmes and insulting to the BBC viewers who will take on a, a not very popular show or a not obviously popular show and then begin, begin to love it because it's well made. That's what the BBC's for, making good shows. It's not about uh, can ITV best them. Do you know what I mean? And so this idea that somehow iCommercial channels are supposed to be given extra help by the BBC tying their hand behind their back is complete nonsense. And it's a real vote turner offer. I mean, this is the problem. The, the viewing public love the BBC and Whittingdale's kind of campaign seems to be getting a little bit insane. And it just seems, you know, this is nonsense. No, I disagree. I mean, I think this isn't designed to in any way damage the BBC's ability to commission top primetime shows in good slots. I think my reading of this is that the BBC is not always the innocent victim here and there have been instances where it has moved its shows to, it would appear, purposefully clash with successful ITV formats. And I just think these measures are designed to provide a way for rivals to complain to someone if it considers the BBC to be acting in... Some sort of recourse. I mean, we, pres- we presume that someone will be Ofcom, although yeah, but, I mean, from what we that, can understand... The whole it. point about TV is there aren't just two channels anyway. There's only a certain amount of hours in the week. There's only a certain amount of Saturday nights. You know what I mean? If you put a show on too late, you, you miss the audience that have gone to bed. If you put it on too early, you catch the kids who don't want to see the swearing or whatever, you know? So there's only... Primetime is primetime. And there are, what, 300-odd channels to choose from. So why the BBC should be forced to kowtow to its commercial rivals is just seems insane. I agree that, that you don't necessarily have to schedule aggressively. There's a difference between, right, we'll, you know, schedulers are quite vicious. You know, they, they, that's in the their nature. Arts. It's the dark art scheduling. I mean, you know, they do work in those kind of, you know, sort of hidden bunkers where they're planning all the time and they do deliberately target other kind of slots and things. However, so if, if we could if we could all sort of relax and say, you know what, put a show out when you feel like it'd be great. But there is a commercial... Uh, pressure of other channels as well so it's like you know the worst thing when you're a producer for example is when you've made a great show and then you finally find out when it's being scheduled and they go oh yeah by the way it's up against the Champions League or something like that and you're like it's on Tuesday nights you know what I mean you're like oh god that's it no one can watch your show so there is this awful thing but there is a subtlety though isn't there because there's a difference between the BBC saying we're going to air Strictly Come Dancing Saturday night 7 o'clock yeah and then them deciding to move strictly because the X when, Factor you know, is on. That's it. When they start doing things like, oh, that moves to eight oh five, and that will kill the last twenty minutes of. I mean, that is schedulers fighting each other. I mean, it was the, a few the years audience ago, do get pissed off. They do get pissed a, off. A few years ago, it was but, it was Britain's Got Talent and The Voice. Yeah, and I remember, I I do remember the BBC messing around with the time that it was playing The Voice yeah. and it looked deliberate. Yeah, it, it might it, not have been I think but it, was, it looked deliberate. The schedulers are all they all work for each other, uh, you know, they've all worked at each channel, other's channels, they all know each other's channels this is scheduler versus scheduler, you know they, they should really just strip naked, cover themselves in olive oil and wrestle it out. You know, the rest like a TV of the, show in itself. Well there you go, next Saturday night Is that what um, you're pitching? That am, that's the first idea. Schedule Wars. Yeah. Uh, but no, but, the, but this, the more insidious thing is the BBC being tinkered with by the government. That's the real message here. 
you know, ag- aggressive scheduling is a fact of life, and all networks have to get over it. Whereas this, I don't think it's being tinkered. It's just offering rivals a place to go to complain if they feel that the organisation is not operating in a and above how, board fashion. How quickly do you think they will go knocking at the door to complain that the BBC is, you know, dominating the whatevers? You know, the BBC makes shows that the other channels wouldn't touch. And if they happen to make a show that becomes successful, then suddenly the BBC is at fault. That's the part that's nonsensical. Do you know what I mean? We should have a BBC that isn't that doesn't care about racing. That's what I dream of. The BBC should be excellence in every single genre. What it shouldn't do is try and out, out ITV on a Saturday night and out Channel 4 on a Monday at 9 o'clock or whatever it is. I mean, you know, so far, this kind of aggressive commercial rivalry has produced brilliant TV. No one's complaining about the quality of the shows. This is just a sort of hurt feeling from one of the commercial channels saying we want to get a bigger rating for you know X Factor or something. I'd be more concerned that X Factor gets better, better produced rather than a better slot. Do we think that John Whittingdale is shaping the BBC to meet the desires of uh, its commercial rivals? This is the problem. John Whittingdale sounds like he really is, you know, uh, cutting slices out here and, you know, a little bit here. It's like a sort of surgeon doing kind of unnecessary surgery. Sooner or later, you know, one of these wounds is going to become fatal. I'm not sure it's it, he's doing it to, to, to pander to the commercial rivals, but he is doing it because, well, he's a Tory minister and they are opposed to a large BBC. And to an extent, those two things go hand in hand. But I'm not sure that it's a case of he's enthralled to Viacom and Discovery and ITV. I think it's much more a case of... Sky. Or Sky, I should say. Well, he described it this week as a £4 billion government intervention. Yeah, that's, I thought that's, was... that's not the words of a, a man who supports the BBC, is it? I mean, the amount of money the government are spending on banks and factories and loss-making industries, and yet all they seem to care about is BBC TV. It's complete balls. May I have to say that? <laughs> you can say that. Um, let, well, look, while we're talking about uh, John Whittingdale... Should we have a little listen to some unguarded uh, comments he made this week uh, at a Cambridge University Conservative Association? Let's have a clip. Here he is joking about the corporation's future and uh, prefacing plans to top slice its funding. Uh, The job which the Prime Minister asked me to do uh, specifically when he invited me to join the government was the renewal of the charter of the BBC. BBC's charter expires uh, at the end of this year. It's a 10-year charter. Um, I'm not absolutely sure what happens if we don't renew it. Maybe the BBC will just cease to exist, which is occasionally a tempting prospect. (laughs) Actually, I like the BBC and I don't want to abolish it, despite what some people would have you believe. There is a case for having some plurality so that the decision as to what programmes are commissioned isn't exclusively taken by a small group of people who are the commissioning editors of the BBC. They will still take overwhelmingly the majority of those decisions. But if you look at the research, there are certain areas where the BBC is not delivering programming which is felt to meet the needs of particular communities. The two where I have most concern are children, where the BBC does do a good job but the BBC is now the only game in town. Uh, ITV and the commercial stations have essentially pulled out of children's television, and I don't think that's healthy. So I think there is a case for having at least some content commissioning done by somebody other than the BBC. And then a different problem with BBC, uh, because others try, but nobody really is currently succeeding in meeting the needs of ethnic minority populations 
particularly in certain communities in inner cities. That's what the research shows. Uh, so that audio was courtesy of uh, third-year Cambridge student Kenza Bryan. Uh, thank you to her for providing it. Well, from my understanding yeah. of that clip, is um, he's saying that the BBC does need to be sorted out in various genre areas, one of which is children's TV, which he says the BBC serves very well, but is the only game in town. Now, from my understanding, what, what he's saying is we'll have to sort that out. But actually, what he means is ITV and Channel 4 have stopped doing children's. That's got nothing to do with the BBC. ITV and Channel 4 stopped doing children because they didn't want to do children's anymore. And, uh, you know, I grew up as a child watching ITV uh, Magpie, for example, which was on at sort of 4.45 or whatever. Now, five o'clock is for grannies and uh, the unemployed and housewives watching quizzes. That is a ratings uh, commercial decision. It's got nothing to do with any kind of, uh, you know, benevolent thoughts to doing children's TV. And it does seem to me that Whittingdale's tying himself up in sort of philosophical knots here. He's complaining the BBC is too good at these areas. He also says that the the lack of ethnic minorities on screen is also a problem, whereas everyone in telly knows that the BBC bends over backwards to get uh, ethnic minorities and black faces and whatever BAME candidates all over the BBC. It's the commercial channels that don't do that. Or, or the, don't the do point it like he's making around commissioners perhaps not well, understanding see that, that, the, that, the audience. I find that really insulting, this idea that there's a small group of commissioners that somehow are an elite that don't get what they're doing. That's what commissioners have to do. Commissioners have to think for the viewers. That's their job. They have to be the conduit between the production community and the viewers. You know, they're the network sort of outward-facing kind of people. There seems to be some sort of implication that the commissioners commission what they like with no kind of regard to the audience. All the commissioners do is regard the audience. That's all they're doing. They're always trying to think what would work for this demographic in this slot and he's using this slightly weird argument, which is great if you don't understand the TV commissioning system, but nonsense if you do. And worrying in terms of the BBC's funding, because uh, as far as the BBC is concerned, they did a deal with the government last summer. Uh, and they believe that that financial envelope, as they sometimes call it, has mm. now closed and uh, the funding has been agreed. But if the government now comes in again and decides to raid the licence fee mm. to provide funds uh, for others to commission content, then that is a reopening of that agreement. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole... BBC will have less money to play yeah. with. And that is something the BBC is very concerned about. And one thing that isn't clear is that if there's contestable funding and the money is taken off the BBC, handed to other organisations to spend, it's not entirely clear how that's making the market any bigger. You're just moving money around. I mean, if he really wanted to change things, he could strengthen Channel 4 ITV's remit in terms of hours of children's commissioning hours yeah. it needs to do. Which I he mean, might well do as well. I mean, he's yeah, already spoken about no, Channel 4. There's no sign of that. What, the, what this sounds like is another little bit of a interference. It's ITV and Channel 4's reluctance to compete that is the problem. And that's not something to do with editorial quality. It's to do with the fact that they'd rather get the ratings from quiz shows and game shows. And Channel 4, by the way, being very clear that they don't want any money from the BBC. So, well, you know, that, that's one organisation I mean, that won't they, be competing what's for weird potential is, funds. I don't think anybody particularly is complaining about this. This is Whittingdale sort of trying to find chinks in the armour to sort of lever in ideological change. On that note, we'll stick with Auntie for a little bit and perhaps change the subject. 
uh, and run the rule over the exodus at BBC Studios. Uh, not even a week into its creation, an entertainment boss, Katie Taylor, factual chief Natalie Humphreys and scripted boss Mark Freeland have all stepped down. The departures come as BBC Studios director Mark Lindsay plans to announce his vision for the production arm, which will make genre heads business rather than creative leaders. Um, so, as far as we understand it, Mark Lindsay is telling staff about his plans as we record today. Mm. But I guess this doesn't really help with the narrative around the brain drain at the BBC, does it? Well, what do you? I mean, Jake, you've been following this closely, and you the, from the from the creation of BBC Studios, you know, all the staff transferring over, all these execs leaving. Well, what's going that, on? <laughs> I think first of all, it's a complete vote of no confidence for the management team that Peter Salmon put in place originally. You know, there's been rumours for a couple of weeks that Mark wanted to come in and uh, completely clear the decks, and he has all but done that, which is quite. Shocking, really. I mean, it's very rare that at the BBC you get this level of uh, you know mm. departures in such mm. a short space of time. Normally, people just yeah. get moved sideways. Well, that, that is entirely true. Um, and uh, it's clear what he wants to do is uh, bring a bit more management experience, a bit more business focus to that top level team, rather than have creatives doing business focused jobs um, but, but this, again this doesn't make sense from a from a producer's perspective because well, outside of the BBC all the various successful indies are led by creative producers who understand business who possibly work in conjunction with a head of production MD. or a, a but, but MD here's, here's, or something. here's but, the rub so the changes that are being made are actually proving to be from what I understand quite popular with lower level producers right. at the BBC who feel confident that they are empowered. They're empowered and they they are good at what they do. They're creative and that they are able to run their own individual fiefdoms without mm. the interference of a sort of creative overlord. What they're saying they need is management uh, rather than mm. creative input. I mean, I, you know, I've worked at the BBC several times, quite recently, in fact, and... Um, the system of you know ideas to commissioner is incredibly complex. The layers and the and the and the interfering chiefs and whatever. And personally, I you know I don't understand why uh, getting rid of uh, big bosses is a good thing, because you do need people to fight for your. Uh, budgets for your staffing for your various whatevers. Yeah, not in, no, wait, 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 in in these kind of closed door meetings. That's where some of the real business goes on. I mean, it's not uh, a, a straightforward. I've got a great idea. All oh, this will be great for nine o'clock on a Sunday. I'll speak to BBC Two. It sounds like that, but it's actually much more tortuous. And so, so the problem is the people, the commissioners at the top, don't necessarily speak to the people at the bottom. They speak to the heads. The heads do the pitching and the whatevers. And so if we get rid of those heads, suddenly, well, who do they speak to now? Because well, no, they're talking about getting rid of them. But why can't that change? Why can't no, no, it's not, it's not it can't change. And, and because I don't know what the system is, it's difficult for me to argue this because I can't work out what is actually going on. But it's, if you start empowering some of those creatives and you give them their own labels. But that's what the creative bosses are already doing. They are empowered. They're not uh, desperately grabbing all the power and glory. It doesn't work like that. What they're trying to do is get their department 
to, to be pitching on screen and get their ideas through. That's what you're doing. Yeah, well, that sounds to me like a role that is much more suited to someone that isn't necessarily a creative, someone that is coming in with a much, you know, more strategic, yeah, But that doesn't make managerial... sense. It's like, it, it's the, the moment we've got schedulers who decide when, when programmes should be played, you've got commissioners in, in bed with the schedulers to work out where the slots and the ideas work, then you've got the people who are running the creative teams... Um, to then try and uh, analyse that information and give it back to them in the form of great ideas that will work and whatever else. TV is a complicated business to make a show, make an idea into a good show. It needs a lot of experience. It needs a lot of hand-holding. It's, it's difficult enough just to get the idea through. Making the show is also a completely uh, tortuous kind of process too. It's not something that somebody who thinks about business is any good at. Business is about profit and, and loss. Business is about, you know, money. What these people think about is our ideas, you know, and this is the thing. Now, outside of the BBC, most businesses run on a creative sort of partnership where you try and pitch ideas in exactly the same way they do in the BBC, get the idea from fruition to completion, but at the same time, you're, you've got an eye on the budget, etc. So it's not about let's get businessmen in. Businessmen don't understand creativity, you know, and they shouldn't be allowed near creativity. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because we're in a in information-free vacuum at the moment because we, we don't know I mean, Mark's plans looks, in details. You know, the, the PR of this, it looks terrible. It, it makes it look like the BBC is a sinking ship. Well, you talk about experience. You know, They're losing a lot of experience. They're looking people. a lot of experience. I mean, I've heard rumours that they've got to get rid of 40% of, of staff. And it's like, what is going on? Everybody is, is it's got a sense of headless chickens about it. And we don't even know if Studios is going to be allowed to make programmes for the third-party sector. In any case, no. Well, well that, will, that will become clear next week. Everyone's confused. Okay, well, keep an eye on broadcastnow.co.uk and uh, you can find out. <laughs> Moving on, TV's view on Brexit. Uh, in a survey conducted by broadcast parent company Media Business Insight last week, uh, 59% of industry executives said leaving the EU would be bad for business. No, I mean, th- I think this is, a, again, a sort of a non-story. You know, most people are pitching to America outside of Britain, there's a little bit of business with Europe. I think this is a sort of another kind of scare story, another angle. I don't think producers are necessarily worrying about the, the idea of Brexit. I really don't. Not on a day-to-day level. Not on a day-to-day, on a day-to-day level. It's can I survive? You know, yeah, can we yeah. can we keep going? Where's my next commission? You know, people. You know, if we were if we were all making shows for German networks and whatever all the time, then yes. But most people aren't. Most people don't have such a kind of pan-European sensibility. Um, they, they, they're definitely thinking of America, and yes, everyone goes to Mitcom and all the rest of it, but none of that will change. I mean, if, if, if we are in a post-EU situation in July and you come up with a great game show, you know, a, a, an Italian network will still buy it off you. They won't say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, you're foreign now. We buy off everybody. You know, most of the formats we, we're buying at the moment are from Israel. They're not part of the EU, although they are part of the Eurovision. Well, tax breaks and co-productions have become an increasingly important part of the TV industry, haven't they, as budgets have become squeezed. It doesn't seem to me that there's any sense that a Brexit would necessarily impact those partnerships, those individual countries' tax breaks deals. In the same way as the BBC, there's an information vacuum to an extent, I think, that there's a certain there's a huge information vacuum when it comes to um, the issue of Europe. Yeah, um, it, you know, it, as you say... People are not worrying about this issue particularly, are they? At no, the moment, I don't think. I don't like think it. it's, not, it's not one. It's not something we're reporting on regularly. Is being caused by the Brexit thought from a TV producer's perspective, not at all. Yeah, and 
it's hardly surprising. You know, people are more excited about who's the new controller of you know whatever channel, or but you know that's that's more important in a day to day way. Yes, and given that the TV industry is probably slightly left leaning, slightly. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, you get an organisation. I am the, wearing the, Nazi memorabilia right now. The, <laughs> it would it would suggest that uh, you know a pro-European stance anyway. Naturally, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, but at the same time, it's also pro-business stance. So it is pro-business. You look at something like Sky. Uh, you know what people would consider to be a right-leaning organisation. It's done a deal, you know, it's tied up Sky Deutschland, Sky Italia. It's got a huge European network now. You can't imagine that Brexit would be a particularly enticing proposition for Sky as an organisation. It's trying to create efficiencies, build a cross-European business. Yeah, but listen, but at the same time, Sky will also do business with Australia or South America or whoever. It's The TV industry is a business. It's a forward-facing business. It's not hidebound by being a member of a club or a special privileges. It's quite a ruthless commercial business. Good ideas survive, bad ones don't, and the marketplace is open. That's to me the message, not oh, and you know, next time you know you won't be able to pitch to a German because they don't. It's like no, no nonsense. Okay, finally, this episode, I'll commission the fortnight. Uh, the BBC, Channel Four, and Channel Five will go head to head with programming about British Muslim communities amid concerns that broadcasters focus too heavily on extremism. All the lightweight um, issues this week, uh, Yeah, Benefit Street <laughs> producer Love Productions will make a BBC Two series on attitudes within British Muslim communities, while The Garden Productions is producing a doc on the Birmingham Central Mosque for Channel 4. Uh, finally, Five Production will open the doors to the UK's largest mosque for Channel 5. What do we make of this? Yeah, I think this is good news. I mean, it sounds like these are strong editorial subjects. It's slightly odd that you know, timing wise, it's all happening at the same time, or maybe that's the whole point. But um, I think it's a genuine coincidence. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's just this is just coincidence. But it's zeitgeist stuff, isn't yes. it? You know, exactly. I mean, everyone talks it's about Muslims, salient. but they don't know anything about Muslims. And now, of course, you hear that <laughs> you hear that complaint all the time that you know you are not being reflected on screen. Blah blah blah. People have, are starting to act on that. And I uh, look forward to watching shows that are not about terrorism, that are not about Islamophobia. You know, yeah. there is a whole different world of ordinary life of and uh, culture that's, you know, potentially interesting. And, you know, that's what we should be doing. And it sounds like that's what the TV industry's finally woken up to. Yeah, yeah, and some of these shows will be good, some of them will be less good, some of them will be more sensationalist than others. You know, I think, I seem to remember, wasn't there a, a, a spate of Jewish documentaries a few years ago I mean, every so often i mean the you know, tv industry is a zeitgeist based sort of reactive industry so there'll be there'll be trans documentaries soon and we had we had a bit of that a yeah. few weeks there'll be few, documentaries about anti-semitism so. there'll be anti-semitism yeah. trans you know uh whatever the latest kind of buzzword cultural sort of noise is whether they'll make good shows who knows okay those are your headlines thanks to alex and stephen On to some previews now. Still with me are Alex Farber and Stephen D. Wright. First up is Mum, the new BBC Two comedy from Stefan Goloczewski, the creator of BAFTA-winning BBC Three comedy Him and Her. The six-part series stars Leslie Manville as Cathy, a mother picking up the pieces of her life following the death of her husband. In this clip, it's the day of the funeral and the first time Cathy has met her son's girlfriend, Kelly. I just wanted to say, actually, Cathy... I'm so sorry about the death of your husband. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And he took so long to die. Yeah. yeah. 
you anything to drink? No. Thanks, Cafe. It'll only make me wee. I do like coffee, though. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah. It's bitter. Has Jason told you about my loyalty card? No. Which means, basically, my next cup of coffee's free. Wow. It's a good system, isn't it, Mum? Yeah, that does sound very good. Well done. They get the coffee beans from Peru. No. Yeah. Peru! You can actually see the sacks they arrived in. <laughs> the first coffee I bought is what's known yeah. as a latte. Sorry, Kelly, I'm just going to, um... Yeah. There's a few grumpy faces in the studio. Mm. Well, it's just about death, Jake. It's a depressing subject. It is a depressing subject. And it's not a particular... You don't think this is handled lightly? I didn't think... It's not, got, it's not got a bit of levity to it. It didn't have enough levity for me. It was just... There was too much cringing going on. Mm. I just found it... Um, what was it? Uncomfortable? Was too, uncomfortable. There was too much cringing. It was too uncomfortable. There wasn't enough laugh out loud But moments. isn't that what we love in Britain? The office is just cringe from... But this know, felt forced. From start to finish. This felt forced to me. And I think that there was too much of the stupid girlfriend that you just heard. Kelly. Kelly. And not enough from the son. I'd have liked to see more, more slightly more of the relationship between the son and the mother. Um, I mean, I really felt for her. She was very well act, well portrayed, and obviously she was, uh, she was great. She Manville, I thought. I, I mean, I, I I thought it got better as it went on, and I thought the last sort of five minutes it suddenly started to actually feel a little bit more real. I think the problem was the first sort of ten minutes felt like a kind of Mike Lee ripoff, and there was all that sort of simpering, uh, very cringy, ridiculously over the top. Uh, dialogue which people would never say I mean you don't go and borrow a pair of knickers to go to a funeral for example which was one of the sort of jokes in there from the widow um, and it just felt it, you know Alex is right it felt very forced and, and unrealistic initially you got very little of actual backstory and it just felt like we were having a lot of stupid comments said by people you know crassly putting their foot in it now, we sort of get that. That happens with people with death. That people are embarrassed, etc. But it just felt like they were pushing it too much when it could have been pulled back a little bit more. I mean, this is the kind of co comedy you call a gentle comedy. It didn't have very many laughs in it, almost none. I didn't really laugh once. And I always, you know, I'm quite traditional. I like to laugh during a comedy. Whereas this felt more like a sort of a drama, but not brilliantly made drama. It felt like a slightly unrealistic drama. Now, obviously, in story terms... You know, they've got to introduce all these characters. We now know there's, there's you know, the annoying uh, girlfriend of the, of the son. We've got all the stupid girlfriend of the son. We've got the annoying woman who turns up who who's like a snob. And, you know, we can see the kind of the framework of the story. But that initial episode was just so sort of embarrassing. And, and a couple of times I thought, oh, no, when I was watching it, I didn't believe it. You know, what I mean, there was, they, they twisted the knife too much, the writers. And so I was I was very disappointed. What did you think, Jake? I thought I, I didn't mind it. I, I agree. I think there was some moments where it was perhaps needed pulling back mm. and felt a little too unrealistic. Um, I mean, it's a great setup. The idea, you know, it's very, it's very good, but the, but the, the, you know, the actual comedy part felt. What are they doing? Are they playing a kind of cringe fest? But what is the, the, you're right. It did warm up. I mm. think the scene towards the end uh, where uh, where Kathy is in the kitchen with her late husband's friend. Yeah. That was the best scene in the, yeah, I mean, in, the in the whole show. Wait, that, see, but that was drama. It'll be interesting to see how their relationship develops. Yeah. Yes, I mean this is the thing that you know you can see this getting. I would think this, you know, with comedies you've always got to give them a, a go because it's hard to get it to, to get it going. 
and so maybe in episode two, episode three, you can see this starting to become real. The characters become less cartoony. You know, at the moment, they felt a little bit too but I think loud and, and, and overblown. Where something like Detectorists had that subtlety, mm. the characters were sketched and they weren't too forced and it felt like these they were trying a little bit too hard. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's probably fair. And also, uh, it's, it's not, it's, it, it doesn't feel as confident as him and her. Um, yeah, the, I mean, those characters yeah. were very fully formed. I yeah. thought in the in the right from the get go mm. in that first episode of him and her, whereas I mean, this one's sort of feeling see, its this, way a bit more. This is the problem with it: you didn't necessarily believe in quite a few of those characters. You believed in Leslie Manville. You believed in her friend Peter Mullen. You, you know, mm. you, you possibly believed in the son who made no reference to the dad's death at all. Um, but the girlfriend, the, the two other female characters, just seemed to be weirdly one-dimensional and completely crass. Okay. Mum is made by Big Talk Productions. It launches on Friday the 13th of May at 10pm on BBC Two. Last but not least is the return of Nev Wilshire, the star of BBC Three's hit series, The Call Centre. Uh, this time, UK TV channel W follows Nev and his phone operators to Delhi as they attempt to open up a new operation in the call centre capital of the world. Imaginatively titled Nev's Indian Call Centre, in this clip, uh, Nev and Dwayne take a look around a prospective office. This is the centre. We've got 22 seats in total. In Swansea, the average cost of a call centre seat, which includes the agent's wage and overheads, is over £3,000 a month. Here, the same seat would cost Nev less than £500. We can paint. Can we paint it up a bit? Can yeah. we paint it? This is almost good to go, isn't it? This is yeah. all right. Well, they say we can get up and running within a week. That's an office with a couch. With a couch? Yeah. I mean, it comes out, actually. Turns into a bed? Yes. And the windows are blackened out? <laughs> so this is one toilet for everybody. It's good for production though. Kanika, you will not want to go in there after Dwayne. Oh, <laughs> Alex, you're a, a Nev fan. Yeah. Get out! <laughs> Get out of my podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was funny. I it's mean, more of the same, isn't it, really? It's more of the same. It's the, it's the call centre goes on holiday. <laughs> if you like the call centre... You'll like this. You'll like this. And if you want to see more of it, you know, they've got those big characters. They're all quite distinct. There's definitely good camaraderie between them all. They're good on camera, you know, the tea, the tea girl and the... Um, the lieutenant, Nev's lieutenants, they've all got very strong, forceful personalities. And there's obviously that, um, what's the word, juxtaposition of mm. taking them out of the uh, the Swansea call centre, uh, which seems to be doing a lot worse, given that he had to conduct his staff meeting in the street. <laughs> Did you see that? <laughs> yes. He's shouting that was, a bit, that was a bit weird with his the microphone. Team. Yeah. yeah. The, the out the window. the producer. <laughs> but um, well, why? It, it didn't street. add anything. Because he's been fine. It meant it was a little bit more dramatic, that's all. Really? Yeah. I mean, he could have done it in a room, but it's better to have him shout out a window and make it look like they're all cheer or whatever. But, but no, I, I mean, I had a slightly different reaction to Alex because I hadn't watched the call centre on BBC. You've three. never seen the call centre? I'd watched it for five minutes, you know what I mean? It's sort of this funny factual thing. I have a busy, thing. busy social life, you know? <laughs> and, um, and so I kind of knew about it and I knew about the sort of big characters and all the rest of it. And uh, so it left me, it, it was a harder thing for me to get into because I didn't yeah. really love Nev and his team, yeah. although they, they, they are good characters. To me, the show got better when they were in India when they actually started to have real things. I mean, what I didn't like as a producer is when it feels like it's been set up. And so there was a few things that looked a bit like, oh, look at this, this is going to be funny. Whereas actually, you don't really need to set up in India. India is a culture shock. 
And when they, they genuinely started looking at offices and saw the ones that they could have been in and a little bit of the squalor versus the ones that are a bit better. And I particularly enjoyed, for example, uh, Nev having a business negotiation with a, an Indian businessman who was quite hard faced. And so was Nev because suddenly you realize, oh, this is real. Do you know what I mean? I, I love that 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 juxtaposition. Definitely a bit of freeson in that and scene. So that this is another show that got much much better in the la the latter half of the show because it started to get more um, authentic. More, more authentic. They love that word. It had more more layers. You know, it had more meaning. So you know, the tea girl sort of trying a curry and a nice lolly and all this. Yeah, great. But so 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 much so travelogue when it actually became real, you start to get a proper story. And Alex, you interviewed the guys from W. Steve yes. North? Yes, Steve North and Richard Watcham. Uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yes. What does this tell us about where W's headed? The feeling from um, UK TV is that Watch was trying to be a little bit all things to all people. And what they're trying to do with the W rebrand is make it slightly more female skewing. And um, they don't want to alienate male audiences. And I think this is one of the, one of the shows that is very much a co-viewing experience. But they are, you know, got a reasonably clean sheet of paper. Um, in the unscripted space, but it's about things that appeal a little bit more to females, just to give the channel a little bit more focus. Do you think this achieves that, Stephen? I think it's a, it's a good commission. You know, it's a, it's it's a bold commission insofar as it's. it's Is it bold? Even give, well, given it, that there's taking a, into uh, India, there's a you know it's proper uh, commitment there. But there's but, a, there's a there's an established brand here, no? Well, it's it's an established brand with a twist. I mean, that's what TV. You know, you want to see people doing things. You want to see kind of an interesting story. This has got all that. To me, in that in that respect, it shows that, that W are, are kind of bold enough to go. Yeah, let's go with this. That's what I mean by bold. And they're sticking to their sticking to their tried and tested formats. You know, I think this is probably a bit of a legacy show, but it's a popular show. They'd be mad just to bin it. And I think there's an audience out there for it. People will come to the call centre. They know Nev. It was doing decent audiences for Watch. You know, let's beef it up a bit. Take it with us to the rebrand. And um, hopefully, um, you know, inherit some some new viewers and bring people to the to the rebranded channel a lot at the same time. Okay, that's it a lot for this episode of Talking TV. Thanks to Alex Farber and Stephen D. Wright. Uh, we'll be back again in a couple of weeks. But until then, I've been Jake Cantor, and the producer was Matt Hill. Goodbye. You've been listening to Broadcast Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 